Hey there, and welcome to The Human Subject. Just a quick note about today's episode. We recorded the interview with Molly and Nicole back in February prior to the widespread release of the COVID-19 vaccine. As we all know, the pace of change with the global COVID pandemic has been unprecedented, to say the least. So as you listen, please keep in mind that the opinions and speculations expressed by our guests and our hosts have potentially shifted as the impact of the pandemic has shifted throughout the 2021 year. Thanks again for listening, and now, on to the episode. Welcome to this human subject. The subjects today are Molly Down Hour, as in cocktail hour, that's her suggestion, Nicole Mills with Medics. Medics is a healthcare workforce organization. We're also joined by our co-host, Eric Smith who's directed clinical trial systems for over a decade and has two master's degrees. I'm Jeff Smith, no relation, currently a student in clinical trial management. Molly and Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Eric, how you doing, my friend? Doing well. How are you, Jefferson? You know, I'm feeling good. We are here to talk about medics, about staffing, about how people who are passionate about sites add value to those sites, and again, the future of clinical trials. And what do you most like people to know about medics before before you explain it? Medics is a healthcare workforce organization, and our purpose is to positively impact lives. And I really feel like the division of medics life sciences really lives up to that purpose because not only are we helping to find people with their right roles in the right positions, uh, but we're also really moving the industry forward and the life sciences program and, and helping our communities. Molly, how did you get into this mess? How did you start engaging in the clinical trials? I am a oncology nurse by training and education and at the time, I was working in an outpatient private oncology practice, and I realized that that was not the right fit for me. And out of the blue, a mutual colleague reached out to me and said, do you want to be a research nurse? And I said, yes. What is that? Uh, so I literally took a job, wasn't exactly sure what it was. You said yes before knowing what it was. Is that mildly ironic for a research or research nurse to have the conclusion prior to any evidence? I would say it was situational based okay. that I knew where I was at was not the right fit and I was willing to take a leap of faith. So while you start out as a research nurse, you say yes because it's situational. What happens next? How do you decide to keep going in this? I fell in love with the role in clinical research right away. This is what felt like true nursing to me. I loved being on the cutting edge of science. I loved having increased patient interaction where I really knew them and I was applying my nursing skills. I loved giving patients hope and learning side effects and, and how to manage the drugs and, and how to get these drugs approved. Um, and then all the other opportunities that this gave me down the road in clinical research. Nicole, similar question for you. What was the piece of your path that led you to getting engaged in medics and engaged in your current role? Sure, yeah. I mean, how I landed in clinical research is uh, a lot similar to how Molly ended up there, except my background and my passion comes from a different area. My grandfather was diagnosed with prostate cancer that developed into colon cancer when I was young, and he survived uh, terminal cancer for 10 years on a clinical trial. And so I basically would have had no relationship or, or memories with him without him participating on a clinical trial. And so I grew up in a household where clinical trials were really 
praised and discussed. And I don't think a lot of people had that similar kind of background. So when it came time to go to school, I applied for nursing school and I decided nursing was not for me. And I went to pursue pharmaceutical sales. And then when the time came, it was about 2007, 2008 in the recession. And a lot of those companies were laying off their sales reps and everything. So I landed in clinical research by chance. And I thought I was just going to do it for a little while until I decided to try nursing school again or find a different pathway. And I ended up falling in love with it and tried a lot of different positions within a site management organization. And ever since then, I've grassed and worked at a lot of different kinds of organizations that have given me a, a, you know, a wide variety of experience. And I've been at Medix now for about three years. This position allows me the opportunity to leverage my background and expertise across the board and connect sites to let them know what's available out there. I think a lot of sites function in a silo and they're not necessarily aware of what's available to them or what information is out there. You know, it's very rewarding for us and for me particularly to be able to help sites improve operations and also help people find the right fit for their career, just like I have been really thankful and grateful to have people who have guided me in my career. I suspect, based on our early conversations, we have a hypothesis with some data that a lot of people come to this because they care about it. I can use my own story. I mean, similar story. I got into this mess because my mom had metastatic breast cancer when I was in high school and didn't have health insurance. And we shopped around for uh, clinical trials, hoping for a miracle and also hoping for treatment that the family could access and that, and started seeing some of the, some of the hopes and also some of the challenges. And now studying it, you know, studying clinical trial managers for the same stuff we're learning is the same stuff that we were dealing with a decade ago when I was working for a law firm that uh, who was representing pharma and trying to address diversity and inclusion, and in, particularly among women and minorities in phase three clinical trials, but the same challenges. And those personal stories, I think, do motivate us. I, I guess maybe, Nicole, you, or maybe I'll turn it to you, Molly, the people that you recruit, the, the staffing solutions that you solve, how much of that is, well, I got to get a gig and I might as well do this. And how many of those human beings are motivated, maybe a little like Nicole and me, because there's something in their life that suggested this is a noble pursuit? Before COVID, a lot of what we were doing were educating people about clinical research. They didn't really know about the different careers, how to get into the career. So a lot of what we were finding were people with a life science background. Maybe they were a pharmacy technician. Maybe they were a nurse in a specific therapeutic area. But we were then educating them about the opportunities, connecting them with resources, education and training, how to get into clinical research, um, and really opening their eyes. We do a lot of presentations at the college level introducing clinical research. And, and so I think COVID actually helped bring that to the forefront with, you know, just the news highlighting the clinical trials and the process we went to to get the emergency use vaccines that we have now. So it's not as much of a heavy lift, but I think a lot of people don't know that this is an opportunity for them. And, and maybe without even that healthcare background, maybe someone with data management skills, there's so many different career opportunities and paths. And I, and I think people aren't aware of, oh, wait, I do have this skill set and there are resources to help me. And so that's the gap that we bridge at Medics. And that's a good segue. It's a good pivot to Medics and kind of what you're up against, what the world is up against, what we're all up against. What's the problem, either the garden variety paradigmatic problem that you solve or the most exciting problem that you solve for the people you work with? Nicole and I do a lot of education for site administrators to 
understand different ways to use staffing services. Um, most people think this is growth and turnover and not there's other opportunities such as project-based work you know, that could be a temporary type role. And then the other thing is really teaching them clinical research finance and the cost of a true hire. So a lot of people may think an employee costs, you know, X dollars an hour. And then I recognize that they also have benefits. And maybe depending on where you live in the country, that's somewhere between 23 and 30%. But really, the cost of a true hire is what takes to recruit the employees, what it takes to train and onboard them, and then what it takes to train them. And that's the true cost of a hire. And it's that cost that should be built into the clinical trial budgets and grants, because that is truly your expense at the site. And I think, unfortunately, that gets lost in translation. Let's dwell on that. Eric, when you were running clinical trials at OHSU, and obviously you were having to onboard people, did you include overall cost of hire or did you include FTE? And if you include overall, like what greater percentage was it? Was it a multiplier? Was it a certain number? How did you wrestle with that? Well, first off, it's it's tricky as a site because technically you should only be budgeting for what you actually are going to use. So you can't just come out and say, now we're going to charge 10 times what the FTE costs us. Uh, you've got to show, you've got to make a, a, an argument to show that you're actually um, utilizing those dollars appropriately. So it gets a little bit tricky, but I want to just agree completely with what you said, Molly. I think that's a huge part of the problem. And I saw trials in different units at OHSU go into arrears all the time. Um, and a large part of it was because they weren't cost accounting well for their staff. It's very difficult. You may have one staff member who's brand new and you may have one who's done the job for 10 years. And do you just apply a simple FTE cost for both of them? You can't do that, right? Because the one who's been trained is not going to take the same level of onboarding, is going to move a little more efficiently, at least in theory. Um, so one of the things that that we did a couple of jobs ago when I was just working in the dermatology group, I noticed when I first came into that group that we were having this problem because we had such high turnover. A lot of clinical trials units will bring in pre-med students because they need that patient experience and it's something they really want to see on their resume when they apply or their application when they apply to med school. So they hire these pre-med students who do a great job and they work work so hard to get this stuff done and they'll do it for cut rate prices. And, And so you get administrators who say, well, that's a great deal. But when you consider the complexity of clinical research coordinators' jobs or anyone else in in the clinical research team's job, the training can take a year. So if you have an employee who's only there for 18 months, it's not really a good deal if you're training them for one year out of that 18 months, right? So what we did was we built a tiered system of, of compensation. So we would actually have a pathway that allowed that model to continue. And then we had sort of what we called the career pathway that would start people off on the same path. But then if they stuck with us, they were rewarded for longevity. And part of that was through incentive plans. And part of that was through just tiered increases in salary at at certain time points. And I think that that's something that the industry really needs to, to get on board with, because as long as you're you know, spending half of every one of your employees' times in training, you're you're not making a good cost value proposition. So what I heard you say is one way to address the that overall cost of hires, even if you don't quantify it, at least minimize it by having to do that less often, uh, by trying to lower lower turnover. Nicole, and maybe Molly will add, but Nicole, let's asking you, is there a formula? Is there a device that you offer 
to, I don't mean physical device, but a tool that you offer to help people calculate that overall cost of the hire? What is that? What's the delta between the, what, what I think of, if I'm looking at a spreadsheet, okay, well, that's their salary, that's their benefits, that's their, uh, th- that's how much their, their FICA is going to be. And now, uh, and you add what? What would you say? Well, I mean, it depends on a lot of different factors. For instance, you know, you could be, you well, I mean, you could be, it depends on the workforce and the available. If you're in, you know, Fort Myers, Florida, and there's no workforce there, and you have a huge need with a large retirement population and a lot of people wanting to do clinical trials and there's nobody to work those studies, it's a little bit different, harder of a recruit to find somebody who's willing to relocate, move there, support that. And then also you're talking about how much money it costs to onboard them. Is it a permanent solution for them? Are they going to want to stay there? You know, there are a company, a lot of companies ask us for guarantees. Like, can you guarantee this person's going to be a, you know, a lifer? Are they going to stay with us forever? Well, no, like lifers don't really exist in clinical research. I mean, maybe they do in the industry, but, you know, traditionally data is showing us that turnover is about two to three years for a research coordinator. And then they're looking for other opportunities, either in a different therapeutic area or moving over to industry side. So there's a lot of different reasons for that kind of thing. The other thing I wanted to ask is, as you guys know, not all of the roles at different sites are identical. So what a coordinator is responsible for in one unit is not the same as what a coordinator might be responsible for in another unit. When we talk about onboarding and the complexity of onboarding, that means the complexity level of onboarding is not consistent either. So as a staffing solution, how do you guys account for that? Do you just train everybody to the max level or do you vary that in some way? So we do a deep dive interview with everyone that we're onboarding and are, we have a specialized recruitment team that is dedicated to clinical research sites and we have other teams that work with the sponsors and CROs. So the recruitment team for clinical research sites understand the variability in clinical research, in the roles, in the titles. So they know keywords, they they do behavioral and situational interviews. So we will find if there is a gap, you know, maybe a coordinator at one site never did regulatory because that was done by the regulatory department. And then we know that there's a coordinators who were jack of all trades and did everything from study startup, budgets and contracts tracks all the way through closeout. So the first thing that I think is most important that we do at Medics is we understand exactly what the job entails. And then when we're looking for candidates, we're looking for them to hit most of the wants that they have. We would love to hit all of them. And I wish the the talent pool out there was able to do all that. But I think you know, realistically, we either find ones that hit most of them or where it translates. So for example, if someone only worked on the sponsor side on data management, uh, our recruitment team understands how those skills would translate to someone on the data management side at the site. So there would be some differences, but then also some assets that they may not have thought about. I think the other thing that really helps when Nicole and I are on these exploratory calls is that the site may have in mind, okay, I need this position. And they'll tell us about the job. And with us knowing what the market is, we can offer suggestions of perhaps how they could tweak this job to make it more marketable. So for example, if you're trying to recruit for a nurse and there is a lot of the administrative and the data entry side, a lot of nurses still want that patient care and may be turned off if it's limited patient care and they're not going to use their nursing skills. So is that an opportunity where perhaps they partner with a data coordinator, maybe a tiered level like, you know, the pre-med students who can be entering this data and that way the nurses are working at the highest of their scope. 
being able to offer have you considers to these sites to help increase their talent pool and and chance for success in their hires. Yeah, that, and I think that's that's great advice, and I think that's something that um, a lot of sites could could do well to learn from. Are you seeing that shift at all? Because obviously, as as trials are moving forward, things are becoming more complex. The conduct of trial, I think we all know, is becoming far more complex. Are you seeing shifts in roles? Are you seeing shifts to where there is more cross, not even just trial unit to trial unit, but maybe a finance manager? who deals with the clinic and does the clinical trial finance. Are you seeing those roles shift? I would say with COVID, we're seeing an increase in, in roles that we hadn't necessarily seen before. So for example, we're bringing in a lot of phlebotomists to do the draws with the vaccine trials. With decentralized trials, really looking at the protocol and what is the level of scope of work do we need? in order to go and do these home visits. Is this something where maybe we don't need a nurse in this area and this is someone, a coordinator who is trained in phlebotomy can go and do? So I think we're seeing different roles. You know, one of the roles that we've seen now that these vaccines have emergency use is vaccine callback coordinators. So for the phase three trials where they were blinded, they now need coordinators to call back the patients who got the placebo to come back in and now get the vaccine, uh, which I think is the right thing to do and, and very deserving for this patient population that volunteered to participate in these clinical trials. And I hadn't seen callback coordinators before. Um, I don't know, Nicole, if you have. No. And I mean, on, on the other side of that, we're seeing a massive increase in the demand for home health nurses. A lot of sponsors are partnering with organizations like ours in trying to identify home health nurses to go see patients in their homes. And oftentimes they want them to have clinical research experience to be able to conduct the clinical trial visits at these people's houses. And that also is providing a little bit of a burden on sites and developing new SOPs. I mean, because I know I personally never had an SOP for home health visits. You know, we didn't even want our coordinators to drive anywhere, let alone go to a patient's house. So this is a whole other level of complexity that's added on, you know, on top of these trials is what visits can be done virtually, what visits can be done in the home. And so with that comes a lot of uh, new technology roles for, you know, data, home health nurses, like Molly's mentioned, phlebotomists. They're trying to find ways to take the burden off of some of the, you know, more time consuming tasks. And in a way, it's creating jobs in clinical research. And it's creating an avenue for people to get into research. But on the flip side, the demand is really high for very experienced people who know what they're doing. Everyone wants somebody that I like to call plug and play, but they can just jump right into a site and take over a study right away with not a lot of that onboarding. We called those the unicorn when we were hiring. Who's the unicorn? You know? <laughs> can you find a unicorn? Because we call it purple squirrel here too. Exactly. All kinds of different <laughs> The, the truth is you're not going to find someone who can do every job in a clinical trial, but we all look for them. And so that's a little tricky. I think, you know, this is an interesting conversation. You're talking about some of the things that are changing with COVID. Uh, and I think with a lot of these things, I, I assume you guys will agree with me that that they'll stay changed when we're in a post-pandemic world. And, and Nicole, you just kind of preempted my next question by talking a little bit about, about the demand. But uh, uh, what other challenges are you guys seeing that you think we'll have in a post-pandemic world arising from the shift in roles? So one of the, the challenges that I, I think we're seeing a lot is the request for PRN staff. And so, for example, some of the COVID trials are following the wave of incidents of COVID in different areas. And so the sponsors have a bunch of sites that they've identified, but they're only going to activate them depending on 
how much COVID is in that area. And so, or with this PRN staff, if they do want them to go to the home, it's not uh, full-time, they can't guarantee hours. And it's really causing a dilemma for the talent because they want full-time jobs and the jobs that are competitive right now are offering full-time or guaranteed hours. And so, as Eric, you said earlier, you only pay typically for what work you do. And yet we're moving to a model where we basically want to pay to have someone on hold and on the ready. And in historically, we didn't pay for them until they actually worked. But I think we might be moving towards a model where we have to pay to have them on hold. Um, it's almost like purchasing a hotel room for the night. You don't pay for just the time you sleep in the room or spend in the room. You have to pay for the whole day. And so I think we need to have some shifts in the models of how we're doing things, because if we don't, it's really going to have a gap in patient enrollment and getting the data in if you're expecting people to just be available when they're all trying to make a living and support themselves. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, that that requires a, a compliance shift. Uh, a regulatory shift a little bit, which traditionally have been slow and a little difficult. So that's a big challenge we're likely to face. It's a good answer. I think also what we're seeing is that sponsors and CROs are moving to almost 85% remote monitoring at sites now, which means that their demand for contract CRAs is massive. I mean, every single CRO you talk to has a high, high demand. And so what they're doing is they're pulling coordinators out of sites. They're pulling and recruiting nurses. And so it is a little bit in a way depleting the, the site resources and the site workforce. So we're constantly trying to backfill in some markets where there's a lot of competition. You know, Boston is one of those areas. There's some other cities like that where they can't keep research staff because they're constantly getting pulled up into going and working for sponsors and CROs, which is, I mean, a really big salary difference. And then, for instance, if they do that for a year or two and they want to go back to the sites, the sites can't compete. They can't pay that six-figure salary for somebody who's used to an industry salary going back to a site. So it kind of creates this really big discrepancy, and, and it's a little bit of a challenge. I mean, I can admit even on our side to to kind of navigate that. Yeah, I think I think you, you touch on something, too, which is that we are, you know, with that large cost of site monitors, remote site monitors to the sponsors. Why have they not made a bigger push? And maybe, you know, we, we may know the, some of the answers to this, but why do you think they've not made a bigger push to utilize technology platforms that allow for more automation, more uh, high fidelity data transfer, things like that? It seems like we're a little behind the times in the industry on that. Historically, we've always looked at the sites to make that investment. And Eric, as you know, asking for capital budget expenses is usually one time a year. And, and many didn't foresee this coming. And so I think now some sponsors and CROs are looking at the sites and saying, oh my gosh, this is what we need in order to, to expedite and get the data. We should help them do that. But then even with them implementing that on the site side, you need to set that up, ensure that it fits with your IT program and the firewalls and, and the connectivity issues. Like there's still work that is done on the site side, even if this technology is graciously purchased for them. But that's another factor too, is I think that sites, we're losing smaller clinical research sites at record speeds. I mean, they're failing significantly and, and they just, you know, the ones who don't have resources to implement that technology or don't have the ability to hire those 
those teams to help assist with that, or even maybe the ones who don't have those strong preferred partnerships with sponsors or CROs are struggling to get off the ground or even, you know, do the work or get the trials. And so it's, you know, it's an interesting time that we're living in right now. But that's also something that, you know, we're passionate about at Medics is helping and partnering with physicians and helping them develop clinical research in their practices, because in turn, that provides access of clinical trials to patients. And that's obviously something I care about personally, is making sure that more patients have access to clinical trials. And so, you know, we try to help work with sites and develop sites on the front end, work with physicians to make sure that they are set up to be successful. Molly, are there new skills that you're recruiting for now or new habits that you're needing to train on now differently from even five years ago because of the move to uh, more technologically engaged, information technology, inclusive, decentralized or remote trials? I think technology and clinical research, you already hit the the nail on the head. I love that Vanderbilt University has a chief clinical research information technology officer because that is the wave. All of us as site administrators, what is really difficult is to have all of these individual systems that are not connected. It's impossible to implement when they don't talk to each other. You know, what we need in clinical research is an enterprise system. So we want the CTMS to have e-regulatory. We want them to have e-source because just adding on all these additional products that are all must-haves to make our lives easier end up either not being implemented fully, we end up making workarounds. And, and can end up slow us down. So I really think there is an entire career path for people who understand clinical research operations and also understand IT, who can help guide us in vendor selection or product service selection, who can see where there's con- connectivity, anticipate and evaluate uh, new technologies that are coming down in the future. I think that's a great career path. One of our good friends and high priestesses is uh, Nelia Padilla, who was at, I forget it was IQV or Quintiles, and, and is based in Cambridge, a, a Harvard person. And she said exactly what you said. She said that that what is necessary, because you got people who are trying to offer enterprise systems, they, they try to offer sort of soup to nuts, every technological tool. But then it's kind of hard actually to code all that stuff, right? Like not all of it's so great. So then the other alternative is, okay, get the stuff that's sort of best in class in its particular function, but how does that stuff all integrate? And now, you know, I'm sort of at risk of even talking about some of the work that we're, that we're trying to do, and I got to make sure I don't step outside into NDA. But, but that idea that the human beings who can play the role of the integrator to say, take this, take this, take this, they'll all go. So, so for the user, whether that user is in the clinic at the clinic desk or at their wearable at their house, that that's all seamless. Eric, do you want to pile on to what Molly was saying? Do you see the same thing or you want to, anything you'd push back on? I absolutely see the same thing. I think that it's a it's a burgeoning um, industry within the industry, if you will. I will say that I, I also see, Molly, you talk about how there's so many new opportunities for staffing in this area. There's going to be opportunities in the peripheral areas to this too, because as you talk about, you mentioned Uber and Lyft to get subjects into, into trials. Well, that brings its own host of challenges, right? Because then there's liability issues. Who pays for the Uber ride? All of that stuff comes up. So the industry really has to pivot the whole of itself to meet 
this new change. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that happens over the next, I'd love to say the next couple of years, but you know, I've worked in this industry enough to say over the next couple of decades, it'll be interesting to see how that pivots. We'll finally catch up. We'll finally <laughs> catch up to 2021 and 2031. Hopefully not. But that does provide a hard pivot, but at least maybe a little bit of a segue to what we're dealing with now, right? That one of the things that is advancing the conversation around increasing information technology within bioscience is in fact the historical challenge we're facing right now, historic challenge that we're facing right now. And with this conversation and the fact that we can see our one of those faces as we record as yet you know, just one most obvious example, how all of us spend our times and our days. Nicole, I'm also curious how else that's impacted your workflow. I have to imagine like nursing shortages, people needing people who can give vaccines has got to be something that you're facing, if not on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we're in Arizona and Arizona has been top of news, you know, a day to day on our lack of ability to deliver vaccines, you know, efficiently out into the public. And a part of that is that our healthcare systems are so bombarded here that we don't have people who are available to actually administer vaccines because they are working in the hospital systems and at the clinics now. So the demand that we have at Medics from, you know, even outside of clinical research, just at the company is massive. You know, everything from temperature takers, phlebotomists, but now anybody who is equipped and able to administer a vaccine is huge. And that's something we're seeing across the country. But obviously, you know, Arizona in particular here is what we're seeing because we're living and breathing it every day. Molly, what is what would you add about the, what you're up against and what medics beautiful. is up against or maybe just what your clients are up against <laughs> with respect to staffing now? We need to move outside of the standard. Everyone needs to have two years of experience. And that's across the entire industry, not just on the site side, on the sponsor or the CRO side. You know, for example, example, I talked with a gal and she had worked 10 years at Memorial Sloan Kettering in their cancer center as a coordinator and then went and got her nursing degree. But she could not get a job as a CRN because she didn't have two years of nursing experience, which was the entry criteria. And so then this top quality talent that I think any administrator would drool over to have couldn't get past the HR portal. And I, and I think those are the things that we need to break down in order to recruit people who would be really great in this industry. Eric, do you agree that there ought to be some loosening or at least diversification of the requirements for some of the necessary roles? I actually absolutely agree with that. I think that Clinical trials is is really not that different from a lot of other industries where people look for a one-size-fits-all solution in staffing, uh, but maybe more so than other industries, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for staffing, except those unicorns and purple squirrels that we talked about earlier, um, and they don't exist. So I think we absolutely need to, I, I don't know if I'd use the term loosen, but we need to be more adaptive in how we're searching for people to fill roles. What do you do? I mean, here's one that occurred to me. Let's say some hypothetical person that is not a member of my family or even a friend that they were trying to wrestle with what are the pay levels for a new hire that is in such great demand, right? Like, uh oh, we have a need, pay whatever it takes to bring them on board. Wait a minute, what do we do with these existing people? I don't even have to use a nursing example. I can use an Amazon example where Amazon was paying these huge premiums and they gave like Amazon gift cards to the people who've been with them for years. How do you handle that? Or what do you advise for uh, for sites to do when they know they have this need? They'll pay extra money to get it. What do they? How do they manage that? So for for nurses, travel nursing services, they are being paid premiums. But this is not new. 
there have always been travel nursing agencies. And when those nurses come in, all the nurses on the floor know that those nurses are being paid a premium. And unfortunately, they might end up getting the worst patient assignments because the other nurses know that they're being paid such a high premium. So I don't think that is anything new. I think a lot of hospitals are looking at that and especially with COVID and and the nursing staff burning out and the high risk and just also the very politically volatile climate. I can't imagine being on the front line working with COVID patients and and seeing on the news people thinking that this is a hoax and, and not taking social distancing and masking seriously. That would be really hard to maintain your emotional just wherewithal to continue to do your job. So I think those hospital systems are really looking into that. But conversely, on the clinical research side, the sites are still coming to us and saying, I know there's a really high demand. This is all I can pay. My clinical trial budgets are set and there's no room to negotiate. But they are offering hazard pay, though, for people who are frontline working on COVID and they are at risk because they are almost basically having to have a whole separate second team available in case their first team gets COVID and is out. They need to have a backup team. And this is when Molly's talking about the PRN staff and those people who are available to jump in as needed. But they are offering hazard pay in those types of situations because it's harder to get people to agree to do that. In addition to adapting the the qualifications. Is there any other advice you have to sites for managing their staffing challenges? I mean, I think for us, it's, it's you know, obviously start within, look for people. Hire medics. That's probably well, the plan. without saying that at first, I mean, obviously we, we are here to help, but I think, you know, oftentimes use the resources you have, pull people who are potentially furloughed from other departments within your organization, bring them in to train up and help. It creates a talent pool for you to have access to when, you know, things turn around and it gets people interested in clinical research. But on the flip side, yeah, I mean, I think using a contract workforce is super helpful. Having that contingent group of people who are able to kind of jump in and help you as needed or, you know, are able to flex up and down depending on the workflow. You know, as traditional business starts to come back, so historical studies that had been put on hold in place of COVID, as those are starting to come back, we're going to have a trial boom. It's expected. We're expecting it in July. Things have been trickling back, but it's going to hit eventually that they're expecting these trials are going to come back and it's going to be a massive amount. And so what are you going to do to navigate that? I know that I, when I was in that hiring position, I couldn't hire up 15 new people because I didn't know if I was actually going to get those trials, if they were going to start when they said I couldn't handle the overhead and keeping people busy. So the ability to have that contingent workforce was a lifesaver for me. And so, you know, for me, I think that's the advice I would give. I don't know, Molly, if you have other opinions. I think all sites have a responsibility to do what they can to raise awareness for careers in clinical research. So for example, and I realize this is not possible with COVID, but hopefully when the pandemic is over, if you're in a hospital system, are you sharing with the other departments the cool things that your research department has done? We got this drug approved. We got these devices approved. Have you invited employees within the system to come shadow for a day and and see what clinical research is like? Are you working with organizations, universities to bring in students. So we took in nursing students. We took in students from a community college that had a program in clinical research coordination or ASU has a master's degree program locally. So we would take in those students as interns to introduce them to careers in clinical research as well. So it's 
planting that seed early on. And hopefully that, you know, some of them will say, wow, that was a fit for me. I remember that. I would like to come back to that. What is your advice to sites then, or in addition to what you said, to be ready for a clinical trial boom in July? Like for you, that means you're gonna have a lot of staffing stuff. Anything else they need to have their eyes on? They need to be talking with their sponsors and the CROs because they know their their pipelines and their timelines and and anticipate and let them know, I need leeway so I can get this in place, so I can make arrangements internally or reach out to extenders like medics. I think that ongoing dialogue is absolutely necessary. And, and what you're saying is, in order for me to provide you the best service, we need to keep this communication flowing so I can be ready in advance. Eric, I don't, do you have any thoughts about that? How would you, you know, imagining the work you've done, what would you be doing now, five months in advance, to where there might be an on sort of an onslaught of demand on on your and your colleagues' times. I think a lot of it depends upon. Not all trials are are equal, right? So it's it's understanding where that onslaught of trials is going to come from. If I had to take a guess, I would say there's going to be obviously a bump in um, trials and in infectious disease. <laughs> but I also think that the trial portfolio has been dominated for years by oncology, and I think that the pandemic has probably pulled away from that portfolio a little bit uh, from oncology a little bit. And I think it will go back to what it was. So considering that we're talking about two very specialized fields, I think we would probably want, if I was still in my old role, I would be pushing for specialized training in those areas and maybe some centralized course service training uh, in those areas as well. That's a not terribly clumsy segue to a question, Eric, I've got to ask you before we go, which is what was the biggest staffing challenge you faced? Right, and maybe it's more than one, or maybe it's not the most pre- maybe it was most most challenging, but the one that was you know just sort of most annoying, or or one that felt the most insoluble. So I think honestly, the biggest challenges that I saw were some of the things we talked about earlier. I think that um, pay inequity is a problem, and and trying to so clinical research staff are paid very very poorly <laughs> for the complexity of work that they're doing. And so what tends to happen is the natural stepwise increase of salaries overall tends to catch up to people who you hired four years ago. So they're still making the base bottom pay. What I saw at, uh, at OHSU, and I, I actually wanted to ask Molly and Nicole if you've seen this trend elsewhere. We saw because oncology has more money, there's just tends to be more money in cancer centers. We saw cancer centers poaching all of the qualified and experienced coordinators and staff from every other area. And so it was kind of like you'd, you'd do the training for the oncology <laughs> department when you were in any other department. And that's a real challenge. So being able to to get to your point, Jefferson, earlier, being able to to offer a salary that's competitive, where you can keep people even within your own organization um, with your team, mm. I think was a huge challenge. Uh, and I don't want to get into too much about this, but I know in Oregon, just this past year, the nation's first equity pay, or excuse me, pay equity act um, was passed. And that tried to level the playing field. So it changed the whole game, but that's only in Oregon. So around the country, I would imagine this is still a problem. So two to three years, we heard from Nicole earlier, was sort of the average uh, for, I think you said, a research coordinator. Do you agree? Is this is this an underpaid? Is that function in the, you know, given the overall revenue in bioscience and pharma and medical science, is the is the research coordinator, research associate, are they sort of the, is that an underpaid piece of the puzzle? Yeah, I think I mentioned before that if they make the jump over to the industry side to go become a CRA, I mean, they're, they're, significantly increasing their salary moving over to the industry side. Like what's the percentage? What, like what's the 
Like from what number to what number? I mean, let's just say, let's just say like an average research coordinator salary is somewhere, you know, $25 an hour or so. And then they jump over to, so you're looking at somebody who's making that 50-ish thousand dollars, 50, 65,000 dollars a year for a research coordinator. They're going to move over to be a CRA and they're going to easily bump over a hundred thousand dollars a year as a starting CRA. And so for them to, it's appealing to make that jump. Now the lifestyle is challenging. That's an insane amount of travel. It's a lot of responsibility and a lot of things, but because of the demand, they're pulling people over sooner and the salary is significant. So if they, if it's not a good fit and they try to come back, I mean, you're taking like almost, you know, a third cut of your salary at least. So it creates a little bit of a, of a discrepancy. And I will tell you, in the 15 years I've been in clinical research, the median salary has not adjusted. <laughs> the budgets have, the salaries have not. And so that's, that's also an issue. So yeah, I do think that they're underpaid. It's something that we advocate for very strongly. And we try to empower sites to be able to help be competitive and increase. But the problem is, is that we have to get the sponsors on board as well to adjust the budgets to pay the sites what they're worth. The, the studies are getting harder. The endpoints are, are increasing. They're demanding credentialing and they're demanding certification, but they're not paying necessarily. And not to hate on sponsors or CROs. It's, this is just something that if you talk to anybody from a site, they're going to say the same thing, is that the demands are increasing, but the budgets are not. And that reflects in how much people are getting paid to work in the job. And so it's appealing for them to jump and go work for a sponsor or a CRO. And, and, and it hurts the sites and they need the sites. I just want to say you've been hugely generous with your time. The wrestling with the human piece of the human subject, not only the participant, and but also human beings who do this work is sort of the essence of why we're having these series of conversations. Thanks so much for guiding us in these conversations. I hope we can do uh, this again. Molly, thank you so much for being with us. Nicole, thanks for being with us. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Be well. Uh, Molly, before you go, where can people find out more about Medics? You probably have a website. Uh, yes. Uh, MedicsTeam.com. And we are in the Life Sciences Division. Appreciate you. Eric, thank you so much. Any closing word from you? Nope. No. <laughs> Terrible All at closing right. words. Don't know what to say there. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Human Subject, trying to bring the humanity and remember the humanity when we're talking about studying humanity. We appreciate you. The Human Subject is recorded in Portland, Oregon, edited by Kyle Curtis with supervising producer Amanda Brockman. I'm Eric Smith, this season's Clinical Research Jedi. On behalf of my co-host, Jeff Smith, thank you for listening. We're a new and growing podcast, so if you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review. And visit thehumansubject.com for previous episodes and to learn what we have coming up. If you have ideas on what we should be discussing or any feedback for the show, we'd love to hear from you by emailing us at podcast at thehumansubject.com. Thanks again. <laughs>